and have a dope day. Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Hello and welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're just going to be listening to Daytime and Daydream and Blue for a second and we'll start our show. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is uh, the host of Psychosocial Radio, upcoming show on Radio for Brooklyn, Demetria Oster. And our guest is uh, Christine Riley, who lives in New York City. She's taught in Sarah Lawrence College, the Dalton School, City and Country School, and Collegiate School. She received her bachelor's degree from um, Bucknell University and her master's degree in writing from Sarah Lawrence College. Sundays on the phone to Monday is her first novel, and she's talking a little bit about that in her upcoming writing. So welcome to both of you. Welcome. Welcome, Sarah. Uh, welcome, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, VJ. Thank you. And Dimitri, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, VJ, so much for uh, inviting me on the show here as a shadow guest. Thank you. So, Christine, let me start off with you and talking a little bit about uh, the themes that, as a writer, you're interested in and uh, what kind of ideas or um uh, thematics you're exploring in your writing and you, as a poetry as well? Yeah. So what I've always been um, passionate about is the idea of communication in the sense of like getting what is in my brain to other people's. Um, before I was published, I taught a variety of ages from second grade to uh, college students. And I found that while the scaffolding uh, differed, it generally was the same task um, that varied greatly depending on the student, but I, it was always a matter of kind of getting all of, you know, the, the hot mess that lived inside my brain into and the, the ideas and um, all of the limits of what I couldn't say into the heads of other people and um, 
I was always, you know, I was always a big greeter growing up. Um, but I, the, the more I started writing, the more I realized that it wasn't so much that poets and writers believe in the power of language. Um, they don't even really trust language. It's more about um, the idea of playing with language, distorting it. Um, not really taking things at face value, seeing how um, all the things that you could do with language. So that's that's something that has always been guiding me with my writing. So interesting, so interesting. And, uh, you know, the uh, poetry angle um, is so interesting to think about because how poetry expresses language, how poetry experiments with language and uses symbols to um, communicate. If you talk a little bit about your use of symbols, I know a lot of your writing... Um, you know, I, I read a little bit of one of the poems that uses the symbol of the moon, for example, and how the moon interacts um, with people and how that can be expressed. It expresses something that can't be expressed in any other way. So we talk a bit about the use of symbol in, in your writing. Yeah. Um, so when I was growing up, I, uh, you know, I went through a, a Carl Jung phase and, and Freud and um, you know, dream interpreting. And what I found really cool about the idea of symbols was uh, just the purpose that they served um, in art, in writing, um, and how the the fact that their double meaning was kind of concrete and finite and how cool that was that, yeah, let's say, let's say the moon um, and the moon cycles, how that could, you know, I could use that as a tool in my writing let's say, um, instead of writing a linear short story that where things happen sequentially, I could, um, like imitate the moon, uh, and, and the title structures and kind of write a little bit more cyclically where let's say, um, I explore a story from different angles and I, I kind of mimic the, the cycles of the moon, um, the power of something that could exist in nature, um, how I could use that in my own writing, I thought was really, really neat. And it was, again, the idea of symbolism, um, something meaning more than what it is in a literal sense, um, gave me power just because, again, I think that the, it was a way where it, something could have meaning, but in a, in a very, um, in a very finite way. So, so the moon could mean, again, so many different things to so many different people, but um, in my short story, it meant the idea of power and cycles and uh, writing something in, in a way that was natural but also original. And that was what it meant just in my work, and it didn't have to mean more than that. Yeah. But I guess, again, that a reader could interpret it in a way that was different from me also, I think, had great power. Yeah, it was very interesting. Sundays on the Fun of Monday, they have the you ha, you included an index of different um, words and, and phrases that I guess are repeating throughout the book, and it was very interesting to look at that and, and re-examine how these. Uh, you know, we have, for example, in the index, you have doctors apologizing on two seventy six. Oh yeah, like, yeah, which is interesting to think about. Then you have to go back and like look at how drowning or I or I think is the most repeated uh, uh, idea in the book. Um, and heart, or uh, um, what is it? Love. Love is one of the repeated uh, symbols in the book of heart. Uh, and it was a decision to include an index in, in Sundays in the Fun to Monday. Tell yeah, us about so that. Yeah, so I have to. Um, so, it, 
like you said, uh, my, my book is fiction, but I have an index in the end and uh, where I, I list a lot of the symbols and themes and um, it tracks where they are on each page, much like a, a work of nonfiction um, with, with research and different, different subjects. Um, and I have to give credit to the poet Zachary Schomburg because um, he wrote this great book called The Man Suit that was published a few years ago that I read um, in college. And it was a book of poetry, but he had, again, similar type of very, very specific uh, symbols and themes that he cataloged in an index. So I just love that idea that in, in fiction or poetry, you can have an index, too, of the, the themes that haunt you. And I think that every writer kind of has these obsessions, whether or not it's something as specific as, like, like you mentioned in my book, I have uh, one, of, one of the things in the index is doctors apologizing, where I list the different, I think it's just one, uh, or, or actually I think it's zero. Um, there's, yeah, the, there's a, no place in the book where doctors apologize, <laughs> but that's listed in yeah. the index to convey, um, a certain meaning. And then I also have, yeah, like the, again, ideas as large as the heart, um, in the body and, and in life. Um, and small ideas. Like I recently started writing a lot about elephants and a lot, about shoes and um, yeah, and I think that it's cool. It's a cool way to kind of see the amount of times in which you tend to write about something, which I don't often realize until later drafts, and uh, see their frequency and see how you treat them on the page and and what meaning you yourself derive from them. So I actually tell a lot of my students to, if they find themselves writing about the same types of things, um, use the index tool in Microsoft Word, uh, which tracks the frequency and tells you which page and how often certain certain themes and symbols might come up in your work. So you mentioned a little bit of some of the thinkers or the philosophies that influence you. If you could talk a little bit more about kind of how these guide you or how what values guide you and how these philosophers or uh, philosophies have guided you in your writing. You talk a little bit yeah, about being absolutely. in such, yeah, yeah. So something uh, I know I've struggled with, and I know other people um, I've spoken to have as well, is the idea that, you know, we are kind of searching for meaning, and at least for me, I've never been able to, to find a fixed meaning for certain things. I haven't been able to really find it in religion, um, or a lot of things that people tend to um, trust and rely on and, and don't really question. Um, I've always been someone who does question, uh, which I know I know most people, I think, if they open themselves up to it, do at some point question um, the, the philosophies that they might have been born or raised with. And I think art was kind of my cure for that, the idea that we are all searching for meaning in different places, and a lot of times we might not find it. Um, that idea in and of itself, which I think art is always trying to tackle, whether it's writing or film or um, visual art or otherwise, or music, um, I, I've kind of recently learned to be okay with the fact that I, I don't know, and the pursuit in and of itself um, is, is perfect is purposeful. Um, like I recently read uh, Victor Frankl, he's been a huge influence on me, his Man's Search for Meeting book and his school of uh, logotherapy, um, the idea of the, the pursuit and the journey, having the meaning uh, has always been something to, to guide me. And, and I think that I find that in specific stories too, um, like 
Crime and Punishment, for example, one of my favorite books, uh, I've always, it always kind of haunted me that the main character thinks the whole time that he's kind of doing some, not the right thing, but he finds um, justification and rationalization. He uses rationalization instead of meaning, or sorry, rationalization instead of reason to tell himself that he 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 did something deservedly so, even though it was it was it was murder. You know, he he uses that his murder was was justified. And so I've always been interested in the idea of people thinking that they're doing the right thing when really they, they're hurting other people. Yeah. And I understand that, um, you know, from reading one of your interviews that uh, the, the novel that you produced Sundays on the Fun Monday has, a, it was inspired by or started from a collection of poems that you wrote while uh, volunteering or while working at a uh, psychiatric institute. Uh, and yeah. and uh, depicted a family. Can you talk a little bit about that and how the poetry evolved into this uh, fiction novel? Yeah, so I started my first novel when I was in college, and it originally, you're right, it started as a book of poetry. Um, I thought that I only wanted to be a poet. You know, when I was younger, I was I was I was a writer of of the smallest scale. Um, would choose the word first, then I would write the sentence, then the paragraph, and then by the time I finished the book, I would figure out what the book was about, which um, has its pluses and minuses. But you're right, I started writing uh, poetry, kind of narrative poetry about these characters, because characterization has always been, you know, I start, I start with language, but I also, um, I, I'm driven by the idea of characterization and imaginary characters and and what happens to them is what kind of drives the story for me. Um, and then I, as I was, you know, I'd write these kind of short episodic poems about these imaginary characters and this imaginary family. And the more I would write, the more, um, the more I started turning these poems into longer scenes. And the more I realized that um, they were almost prose-like because they were longer. And I realized that I was paying more attention to what was happening to them as opposed to um, how, you know, like the, the, the form and how the words looked on the page and the aesthetic. And then I realized that I had a lot more to say about them and that the best form probably would be in chapters and in a novel as opposed to in poetry. But I think, you know, I think that there can also be benefits to, writing from a poet's kind of with a poet's eye or from a poet's perspective, because you do tend to really, really focus on, on the, the construction of the words and that, you know, that, that has a beauty um, in its own right. Good, good. So you mentioned you're a teacher and uh, you also teach at various schools. Um, if you talk a little bit about what's the most important lessons that you have to impart from your own writing, uh, which you think is most important discipline for yourself and, that you kind of try to impart on students who are starting to write or on the process of writing, um, whether it be lessons you learned from poetry and uh, how you were able to apply those lessons into, into fiction writing. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I, I, I realized in your previous question, you mentioned um, the uh, mental hospital that I had worked at, but I, I think that um, it's a similar type of work similar type of life work and teaching and in, you know, any job where you really have to communicate with people and, and try to understand people who might not, 
or might be struggling with articulation, which I do think is everyone, but um, I think especially with, with children, with people who might be hindered by something um, in their brain or sick with something, um, or just people, you know, willing to learn who, who want to learn a craft like writing. Um, again, it's that idea of communication, getting what's in, in my brain to somebody else's brain um, and trying to break down things that might be emotions and, and themes and, and, and ideas that might be pretty complicated, um, putting them into simple words. And I think that that, like I said, that's always driven me as a teacher. It's always driven me as a friend and, and community member and, and family member. Um, and it could be, and part of the beauty is, I think, in the messiness of, of conversation of the times when it doesn't get across and, and learning from that mistake. So, so I love teaching, and I think it's really helped me as a writer, that idea of, I think, I think a writer's job and a teacher's job is phrasing, you know, not phrasing simple things in complicated ways, but phrasing complicated ways in complicated things in simple ways. Yeah, and I think that uh, it returns to the idea. There's a uh, ideas that I've been exploring in in Wittgenstein and uh, Wittgenstein. Luke and Wittgenstein was a philosopher who talked about language games and how uh, there's always systems in place of uh, like familial understanding of language. So my understanding is that you know we're trying to you know we're playing the you know this is a radio show game and we're interviewing game and you know the kind of formats in which we understand those uh, question and answers to be and and how uh, we already have sort of these assumptions about what's going to happen next and what's going to, what the format allows for. So similarly with fiction, people, readers come in with expectations. They expect certain things. And with poetry, they come in with certain expectations or, or um, understandings of what the format allows for and how we mm-hmm. can play with those expectations and how we can uh, come up with something a little different or, or defy those expectations and, and create that joy that comes from uh, reading a, a good book or a good piece of literature. Yeah. So if you have any yeah, comments on that. Yeah, I think you're so that, right. Yeah. I think, I think actually one of the most dangerous things um, about humanity is when you have a fixed idea or a conviction about how things are and even how, how you are. Um, and I think that language could be really destructive in that way. And part of, part of writing and part of communicating is kind of fighting that. And, and saying, you know, things things aren't exactly how they might seem out of my mouth or, or on the page. And let's let's explore that and let's fight that and let's fight everything we think that we know and admit that we don't really know that much at all. Mm. And I like to look at, you know, books, movies or music or any kind of um, in the arts as artifacts, because I think artifacts are interesting to think about because they're more of representation or one depiction of the mental continuum or the mind that produced it at that moment and that it's constantly fluid, it's constantly changing. And think about that in those terms. In those terms, uh, what what uh, particular artifacts? You mentioned a few of crime and punishment and such, but what is coming up for you now um, that are heavily influencing your direction um, mm-hmm. and where you're going towards, yeah? So my favorite book of all time um, is probably Les Miserables. And I think that, it, you know, in terms of, of classical literature, it's it, on a thematic level, it, it, it has everything. You know, it has war, peace, um, love, the different forms of love, 
Um, but I think, you know, the greatest tension for me is that, you know, the foils of Valjean and Javert and how Javert, you know, he, he goes his entire life thinking that he's doing the right thing, um, thinking that his, his life's mission is to respect the law and tell the law is the absolute word. And once, you know, that moment where he realizes that he has been living kind of a, a life of falsehood, uh, living for something that basically was the opposite of, of what he had intended and realizing that, you know, criminals could could be good people too and, and have humanity. And, and once he finds the humanity in himself, in himself that defies uh, the law, that's when he, uh, I don't want to say <laughs> spoiler alert, but, but that kind of, it takes it takes his life that idea, and um, so thematically that has always it's it's been a book I often think about um, when I am writing about the idea of you know I'm thinking about what morals are in my and what humanity is and and what what religion is even beyond organized religion uh, in my characters and in life, but I think. Um, you know, in terms of contemporary literature and postmodern literature, um, there's so many great things out there, so many great writers out there. A uh, big influence on me has been David Foster Wallace. Um, I think that I kind of likened it when I was speaking to my musician friend about how he influenced me. I said, imagine if someone, you know, took all music notes and kind of threw them out the window and said, this isn't how you're supposed to be writing music. Um, I had that kind of awakening in my young 20s with David Foster Wallace and what, you know, how he took the classical plot structure and, and story plot uh, story structure and, and said, okay, I'm going to turn this on its head. And, um, you know, I, I discovered beyond him that a lot of postmodern, he, he was hardly the first person to do it, but um, he, you know, the idea of, postmodern writing has it was a big awakening for me when when I was seeing what what goes beyond the classical plot structure and and how how could I write something different and how could I use language in a different way beyond what I had been taught in school yeah and it seems like uh in regards to the mes and such that um you know there's a lot of uh undercurrent in today's society about you know, trying to fight against uh, this larger structures that seem to be misguided about society or we see or perceive language being used in ways in which kind of in a Aurelian sense, uh, you know, are very much in, not in concert with what we feel uh, is right or what we feel is, um, you know, where we want to take society, where we want to take our, our country. Um, but at the same time, we want to kind of find a grounding place where, in our own personal experience, we're able to connect with our power source and find ways to speak from an honest place, not just adding to the noise, but rather speaking from an honest place and, and connect it with our personal narratives and, and be able to find that space of power where we can speak for those who cannot uh, speak for themselves. And I think Lemez kind of really speaks to that kind of an idea, the, um, you know, the, those who are marginalized and, 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 and telling their stories and telling the stories of, of how it fits into the larger picture, you know? So uh, yeah. as writers, I feel like we're really trying to um, speak up and, and speak to that. So if you talk a little bit about kind of what you feel is uh, kind of what you perceive as something that's misguided about society as a whole or, or about this country or 
and uh, how you feel as an author, as a writer, we can address that and kind of bring to change the conversation, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that quote where the, the personal is political or the political is personal, um, I think resonates because the, I th- the larger something gets, I think often the harder it is to resonate with people. Like, for instance, one person dies and it's it's a tragedy and then many many people die and it becomes a statistic right it becomes depersonalized um so politics i think maybe for a lot of people who don't follow it or don't you know think that it's phony corrupt you know don't really want to have anything to do with it um it can be easy to depersonalize it and say oh well it doesn't really have a lot to do with me or you know it's not really going to impact my life you know one vote isn't going to really change anything um i think you know obviously that is very troublesome and i think that the best way to make the political personal is to think of those ideas um the things that people are debating about on tv and and it can you know easily you can easily make it sound like talking heads, um, to change those ideas from abstractions into things that you can feel. Um, and I think, you know, empathy and sympathy in their own regard might be dangerous when there is a discrepancy between what you think the person's feeling and what they actually are feeling. But I think empathy and sympathy is the closest bridge that we can come to taking action and understanding somebody's plight and personalizing what has been depersonalized. So I think that writers, you know, the job is, their job is empathy to write characters, to construct characters, or to relate their own experience in which people can put themselves in, in their shoes and use their toolbox of life and, and emotions to feel what they're feeling. Yeah, and it seems like uh, we can talk a little bit about the ideal, and then we can circle back to some of the things you're saying. But um, what, what is the ideal? What, is, what are we striving towards? And what, is, what do you think is the ideal in this society or as a person or for yourself? Um, kind of what the utopia would look like? What would the, um, the perfect society look like? And then kind of moving towards that? Or is it really objective? I don't know. What do you think about that? Or I think everyone living, you know, the perfect world would be everyone living and treating other people um, the way... Uh, you know, like it's, <laughs> I, it's cliche because it's true, but do unto others, right? Yeah. Uh, no wars, no ideas about who other people are that are fixed, no judgment, um, no, you know, people, everyone acting beyond their id, beyond their animal urges of, let's say, violence and, and, and pure emotion. Um, but, at the same time, I guess, not disavowing that, you know, everyone kind of seeing clear-headed the truth about who they are, what they might want, um, what they should be doing, um, and being being at peace with that. You know, everyone treating everyone the way that they want to be treated. And I'm laughing because it sounds, you know, it's, it seems very simple and it's been repeated before, but I think that, that the simplicity of that means that it shouldn't really be too hard to do and yet it's something that humans have been struggling with and will continue to struggle with because we are complicated messy messy creatures but i think that when it comes down to it it's that idea that 
we don't we might not know the truth about an entire person including ourselves but we should be okay with that we should be at peace with the lack of of meaning that that exists around us yeah it seems like um when we think about sympathy or empathy and the ability to connect with and make uh, understandings between people. The obstacle seems to be that we have this otherizing, you know, the person's the other, this person's different from us, this person's from some other system of thought or some other, uh, even, you know, when we get down to some other biology or something like that. It gets to, we get fixed on these ideas. We kind of think of them as being, you know, very rigid, being very rigid in that uh, this person is, is so different just because they're, they're expressing themselves or their language, returning to the language idea, they may be saying things that are uh, on the surface level different, and we want to understand their meaning, but at the same time, um, understand that different perspectives are informed by different states of being, but that, um, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a continuum of consciousness that, that pervades all of, uh, that, that unites us all, you know, that we're all kind of from the same fabric, we're all from the same uh, ideas, and, and we're all existing in... Uh, in this life as, and kind of uniting, you're talking a little bit of sympathy and empathy. And, uh, I didn't quite understand, um, what you were saying about how the dangers of sympathy and empathy. And I'd like to explore a little bit more about that. Um, kind of how that can be detrimental, how that can be also be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, I mean, you look at history's biggest atrocities, um, and there was always, there's always that simplification involved in that, that reduction of somebody's humanity. Mm. Um, you know, I think like a, I was really close to my grandpa who was, um, he's a Holocaust survivor, uh, and he, he survived the concentration camps. And I think, you know, you look at how could an entire country, an entire world, you know, how could, and, and it continues to be, you know, in America, you know, with, with children in cages and all the, the horrible things that have ethnic cleansing around the world, They're like all the things that continue to go on. And the, the common thread, I think, is that idea of people seeing another group of people not knowing really anyone or refusing to get to know them, refusing to see the humanity and saying, oh, they're, they're different. They're not, you know, they're not fully human. They're not as smart. They're not as capable or not, you know, that, that, that dehumanization has everything, I think, to do with othering, as, as you said in, in those words, and having that fixed idea about who somebody is, um, is, is the easiest way, I think, to deny somebody's personhood. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a very dangerous territory to go into and in how we can use language in a assertive and a kind of embodied way, fully embodied way, fully empowered way to, um, uh, stand uh, our ground and say that this is um, this is something that's not connected to our place of being and and I think that language is very powerful in the sense that uh, you know they say that the cliche is that the pen is mightier than the sword because uh, and the truth in that is that uh, you know we can use our language to to really influence the mind and really get into the mental uh, the the root cause of um, of, of ignorance, the root cause of wrong action, which is the, um, you know, the mistaken perception that, uh, that we're different, that we're the, the otherizing and that, you know, it's easy to resort to some kind of, uh, you know, overtly violent action, but rather we should try to 
and fully embody our truth and be able to connect with it and and find that power from there. So yeah, yeah. So if you have any thoughts yeah. on that or any comments, yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I yeah, go ahead. I know what you're gonna say. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say part of that involves just the undoing of really dangerous language. Like I think people were were inherently drawn to conviction. The idea of cause and effect, the idea that there will be a politician who comes out and says, I have the answer to all your problems. I'm going to, you know, give you an identity about who you are, um, what, you know, an identity that maybe you've been, you feel has been missing or, or declining or, or kind of murky. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you who you are, what you deserve. I'm going to give you somebody to blame. Um, I'm going to give you rationalization. I think part of our job as writers is using the ambiguity of how things are and how things can be complicated, um, while at the same time having, you know, I'm not, this isn't to say that you can't have any convictions of your own. You know, I have the conviction of, of humanity, of, um, of the idea that truth is complicated and nuanced, um, the idea that conviction can be dangerous, um, all of that un- undoing what dangerous language does and what the simplification of language does is is the job of, of writers um, and activists. And it, it's, I mean, let me tell you, it's harder, right? It's way harder than somebody who can believe in that very simple cause and effect uh, conviction. And this is who I am. This is this is my identity. It's it's cut and dried. It can be written on paper uh, in a simple way. Um, that's that's where the most danger lies. Yeah, and embracing the unknowing, I think, is is you know, if people feel very discomfort discomfort or anxiety around not knowing or not having definite answers. But I think just being able to or being able to navigate the unknowing and be able to feel comfortable and empowered with. Um, approaching things with a fresh mind and approaching the changing terrain with a fresh mind is so important and, uh, and so vital to being able to respond authentically to different, um, you know, the changing, changing scenery, you know? So in this world, we're constantly, everything's constantly changing and being able to uh, adapt to that is so important and that, and that unknowing or that embracing that knowing seems to be the most important thing there that I'm getting from what you're saying that, uh, you know the conviction in the in the uh, conviction in not knowing, you know, and that we're we're approaching things freshly, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we do That's a reading? Right. Would you if you like to read something? Uh, do you have anything you like to read or? Uh, oh unless... sure. Yeah. Um, I could. You know, it's it's funny. I've I've been working on my second book, and I haven't been doing. I haven't been writing a lot of poems. I, I stopped writing poems for a few years because I put all of. I guess the poetic energy, so to speak, into my book. But then recently, um, a couple of months ago, I started writing again. So I could read maybe a poem that I have been working on. Okay, great. Sure. Tell us a little bit about okay. it, and then you can set it up a little bit. Then, yeah. So this is a poem. Um, let's see. Let me look. Um... Okay, so this is called um, Andy Requiem. Mm-hmm. And do you want to start? 
Yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. <laughs> Angie Requiem. The city rides with a time-release blue, bruised sky, tinted lymphatic pink, hints of flesh patching the air. God surveils her vanity project, gasping, good Lord, touched by its posture, riven space, gap in mouth shape, plots in a graveyard, holes in a harmonica. She'd been sidetracked. Yet she, raven teeth blinding, sees its bright side. Each incorrigible cloud has a peroxide lining, a harmony and enamel binded to the manic American dream logic of reinvention. Smart gods devise time for hassles like this. Wipe the place clean of charge, renovate by the grin of a third skin. All erasable memories will thin, all instants, their torched hairs. Their bare bassinets, their Sundays vanished parks, heavenly dogs vaulting for their final frisbees are erasable. Thank That's you. It. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So good. And I think it's yeah. interesting to think about. Um, I think you mentioned a little bit of the gods and such, and how the, this kind of thing. If you talk a little bit about kind of how your interpretation of that is, and and how we can kind of bring that those power sources to you know, kind of thinking about the gods as being like. I, I get the impression it's kind of like like the uh, mytho- mythological way in which we speak about gods, right? Yeah, so that poem was about the idea of erasing history and er- erasing horrible things that might have happened on Earth and the idea of kind of the collective memory of a culture or society um, maybe lacquering over parts of their history that they aren't proud of, uh, which we, you know, we've been seeing. It can, I think every culture kind of grapples with that, uh, something from their past they're, they're ashamed of, um, and how to to write, write that shame, write that tragedy. Um, and I guess the, the worst thing you could do isn't, isn't writing it, but erasing it. So I wanted to write about the, I guess, the, the terror that might ensue with what isn't said and with silence. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, the, the main character here, so to speak, is, is, God, is a god um, or the god of, of this, this world. And the god in, in this poem, at least, you know, I, I, write, I write about god a lot. And yeah. It, it can be different things, but um, in, in this, it's it's a, I guess a faulty god and a god that makes mistakes, makes the mistake of 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 forgetting, erasing, trying to kind of patch over the horror that that that's happened in 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 the gods, in what the gods created um, in, in its past, and. I often write, I think, about gods that make mistakes. I often, uh, you know, humanize God because I think that God, in in the written language, it's often used to convey something that's just bigger than than what we know and bigger than what what's existed. So, so I like the idea of of making that God um, something relatable or someone relatable. Yeah, yeah and someone great. maybe even dangerous. 
Yeah, it's really great. Um, I re- as I mentioned in the beginning of the broadcast about the the moon poem. Um, did you happen to have that up? Otherwise, I, if you with your permission, I don't mind reading it. Oh, yeah. a moon walks into a bar. Yeah, is that the one? Yeah, yeah I wrote that one a long time ago. I, uh, yeah, hold on, let me see if I can pull that one up. Okay, great, great. Yeah, I had, uh, the you sent me the link to it on the email, so yeah, it was really great. Yeah, I thought it was published, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was that was published in uh, Barely South Review. So I wrote this in grad school, and um, I went. I don't know if I'd call it a phase, but I, I was really interested in surrealist poetry um, and the idea of things that might not fit together being depicted together. So this is a surreal type of poem. Uh, you want to read it? Sure, go ahead. Okay. A moon walks into a bar. A moon walks into a bar and forgets to take off his soccer cleats. A lady friend bellows, look at those obliques. Moon is embarrassed, turns pumpkin and sunflower in the cheeks. A moon walks into a bar and a flashlight mistakes him for another flashlight trying to pick him up. The moon is too drunk to trust his own diminishing moral code, so he consults his lady friend in the bathroom. She tells him, let him blow you, but don't touch him or anything. The bathroom is playing Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which is Moon's favorite song. He takes it as a sign and goes back, to, and goes back into the smoky bar, ready to be fondled by a stranger. The flashlight is talking to a boat-shaped chandelier. He orders her a mind eraser and thinks he's suave. The flashlight avoids eye contact with Moon while telling the boat-shaped chandelier about how pre-Raphaelite she looks, how bright she is, like a banana leaf. Moon thinks, don't get so down on yourself. People don't think about you as much as you do. A moon walks into a bar and people try to cop a feel, claiming, I've never felt anyone's moon before. The moon surprisingly contains a lot of muscle. A moon walks into a bar and people ogle at his big soft legs like they're made of sugar. A moon walks into a bar and his hair looks a bit oily. Some Chinese, cha- some Chinese claim to worship the moon, offering him a slice of honey cake. He prefers to drink beer out of a sippy cup. A moon walks into a bar and accidentally gets salt hard, turned on, and people notice and people hand the moon their business cards trying to network. They ask moon, what was your major in college? And Moon replies, rhetoric. They shut up. A Moon walks into a bar and somebody says, my friend Jupiter, he has a lot of moon. And people bar hop, one closer to the sun with more breathing room. They finally leave Moon alone. A Moon walks into a bar and prays the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He looks for Earth, his own father. He forgets that right now he's living on Earth, not in his crater womb, but holding his hands on the ground. You know that trite quote about footsteps? You know the one, the way it's endlessly reprinted on funeral programs. I was carrying you, son, all this time. Not many people know that Moon's footsteps are clouds. On overcast days, Moon exercises with studi allure and a pedometer, hoping to shrink to the size of a gooseneck banana. Earth stares back at his son, remarking, a disappointment. A Moon walks into a bar and stares out the window at an Irish nightingale. He's convinced she may be the reincarnation of a girl who died young, the tallest girl in the class. She has no friends in this life or the one before. Thank you, thank you. The end. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's very funny. I like I like how humor is used to kind of play with expectations and how, uh, generally speaking, we can use humor to kind of disarm or like uh, create a sense of like uh, you know that we don't have to fight against because it's funny, you know, because it's like you know we can kind of go with the flow and and allow for humor to percolate in our minds and let the joke to kind of settle in our mind and. All this kind of thing. If you talk a little bit about that, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the best art has both. Um, 
humor and tragedy. There's, you know, two sides of the, the same coin. And I think that comes out of humans, I guess, like, our, we have, like, reserves of both. And when one runs out, you have to kind of turn to the other one. Uh, you know how people say, I guess, like, if something, like somebody cracking a joke at the end of a funeral or, you know, having something lighthearted accompany our, our, our most tragic moments or the, the moments where we feel like tragedy has gotten so large. Um, and the other way around too, you know, I think that the best humor has, has gravitas to it. Um, and I think that much like our day-to-day lives, good art should have, have both because it's also, you know, when, when you are, when something does get too grave on, in a story or on the page, it runs the risk of sounding maybe too one-dimensional, too melodramatic, something we can't really relate to. Um, and then if something, again, is, is only funny and doesn't have that that kind of tragedy driving it or, you know, like deeper themes driving it, it can it can sound too vapid or, or meaningless. So I think that, I think good art has both. Yeah, and I think that there was uh, the philosopher's Isaac who concisely said, you know, first tragedy, then farce, which, uh, you know, implies that, you know, even things that begin to strike us first is very tragic, sometimes turn into, uh, you know, fodder for com- comedians because, uh, you know, it's just hard to process all the time, tragic, 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 you know, all the time feeling down and depressed. We have to kind of turn it or flip it and become and, and laugh at it. Like The Shining was my experience of something when I first watched it, the the movie oh, yeah. by Stanley Kubrick. When we first watched it, it's very scary and very terrible. Uh, full of terror when you're watching it. And then slowly, slowly, you know, it's like it turns into this comedic piece, at least in my experience of it. It just seems so over the top and very, uh, I find it funny now, you know, <laughs> like how our experience yeah. of being the same artifact can change, you know? Yeah. Yeah, when I was a, <laughs> when I was a kid, I had, I would be, set, like, I had a lot of trouble. I would always uncontrollably laugh, like if someone made made me laugh, it would be really hard to stop. I had a lot of trouble with self-control. <laughs> and it was the same, I realized what, I had the same thing when I would start crying. It was really, really hard for me to stop. Um, and that, that was when I realized how similar laughing and crying could be. Yeah. You know, the relief of both. So let me tell, if you have a story about something that happened to you that taught you the most important life lesson you've received up to this point, and what was like an experience that really molded you uh, in the in the person you are now? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mentioned my grandpa before, I think, when I, you know, I had interviewed him when I was in middle school about his, his experience um, in, in the concentration camp. And I think larger, you know, than the story of his suffering was, and, and, you know, just the story was also the story of, like, what humans can do to other people. But I think beyond that, he was one of the happiest people I'd ever met, Um you know, he loved gardening. He was just so, so sweet. Um, he taught me about like, how to make change and and just the most, like, one of the happiest people I'd ever met. Um, loved his family. Uh, was very close with his kids and his grandkids. And and so I think, you know, that was a, a big defining moment for me growing up. The idea of if your life, ha- there are a lot of different ways to live it, but it, the most important is to use it to just 
figure out what's important in in, in his case and in my my case that's it's family it's helping other people um it's finding happiness and, and simplicity um and then i think I don't know. I think that there are, I think every day you have a lot of really small defining moments and the, the little choices that, that you make determine who you are as a person. But I think, again, just, just that idea that the, the self and, and, and who I am is, is something that is, my nature is the same, but I think every experience makes, makes me different. Every little choice that I make. And I think a big coming of age moment for me was the, you know, learning to be proud and in, in making choices no matter how big or, or how small and, and, and having that give me agency was really huge. Um, you know, I've talked a about, lot of that had, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've talked about, I was just to say about choices and such. I've talked a lot about in other episodes and, and, in, in the archives and in, uh, various shows on radio for Brooklyn that improv was a big, uh, changing moment for me, or at least a practice that helped me, because uh, you know, making a choice and going with it and feeling committed to it, and and uh, yeah. and having that define you, but not in a rigid way, you know, it helped me a lot to kind of allow things to happen. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think too a lot in when when it comes to you know my I just turned thirty this year and I I think about like what was the year in which I feel like I really kind of came came into myself and came of age and it wasn't you know writing has been something I've been doing since I was a kid you know I've always been a huge reader and a huge writer and so I think inherently even if I were to resume another career besides teaching and writing if I were to do something entirely different I think writing would always be something I would continue to do to my for myself um you know just just even if no one were to read it I would I would continue to read and write all the time. But I think, um, a big moment for me, um, into adulthood was the idea to kind of reach out to age. You know, I didn't really know that many, I didn't really know anyone, um, who wrote fiction or who published fiction. Uh, and so when I did kind of finish an early draft of my book in my young twenties, I, I reached out to a bunch of, I kind of cold emailed a bunch of agents and, and really thought through and, and kind of gave myself motivation. Um, and like the hutzpah that I don't think I have now, um, <laughs> you know, cause the older you get, I guess the more humble you get. But when I was younger, just kind of taking my, the finished draft of my book and, and seeing, um, you know, kind of having the audacity of, of seeing if anyone would take it was was a big moment outside of my comfort zone but it, it led to my book being published and it led to you know having some great writing and teaching opportunities so i'm really i guess grateful to my younger self for for having the gall to do that yeah, yeah it's really great really great stories and such and really great way in which we think about kind of how we can redefine our progress and having just turned 40 i'm like you know thinking back and trying to reconnect with that person who was 20 or that person who was in and honoring that and honoring that uh place and being able to get that energy or be able to tap into the energy of um of youth and being able to of uh as you're saying that um the courage you know so that's really great and i'm gonna i'm gonna take a moment now just to uh uh you know before we end talk to dimitri 
uh, about his show and let people know a little bit more about his upcoming uh, uh, web series or his upcoming show on Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, Psychosocial Radio. So if you could talk a little bit about what Psychosocial Radio is and when it's going to be airing. <clears throat> Certainly. Thanks a lot again, guys. VJ and uh, Christine, I'm just sitting back here listening to the conversation and... Uh, you know, it's really great. It's uh, really, really interesting hearing a lot of the ideas that you guys share on communication and language and thought, and it's awesome. And, uh, you know, special shout-out to Christine as well. I <laughs> just want to say real quick for mentioning Victor Frankel. That's not a name we hear a lot these days, and yeah. uh, <laughs> I uh, hope you teach him in your classes. Uh, he's actually one of my favorite writers. Uh, I have that yeah. book, Man's Search for Meaning, in my personal library. So, yeah, uh, good choice. Good choice with that always. But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be hosting a show every Friday um, from 3 to 4 p.m. here at Radio Free Brooklyn called Psychosocial Radio. Uh, it's going to be myself and my co-host, Edward. So, um, you know, we hope everybody tunes in, and uh, it's going to be our first show airing this Friday. Uh, you know, we're also hoping to take a few live call-ins to the show. Uh, it's probably going to be about, you know, a split down the middle, 50% music, 50% talk. Uh, a lot of issues that are pertinent these days, uh, really focusing on mental health, general mental health and addiction also specifically, uh, talking about how to get help, how to access help, uh, you know, different ways to try to just articulate help and uh, what that means, you know, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, uh, while also playing some pretty uh, pretty good music, yeah, <laughs> in our great. estimation at least. So, yeah. yeah. And again, thank you, Vijay, so much for, you know, the opportunity to come down to uh, shadow you here in the studio and, you know, learn the arts of, of everything that goes on here at Radio Free Brooklyn. Great, great. And Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. To help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stand there. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. And all contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, also, I've been announcing in the past couple of shows that uh, Ready for Brooklyn is having an uh, after-school program. That in 2019, they're going to help te- local teenagers to learn media literacy and uh, hands-on approach to guided by local professionals. And if you're interested in participating or donating to this program, Please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after school. And remember that all donations are tax deductible. Also, if you're listening on your computer for yourself with a mobile app, uh, you can listen uh, by downloading the app. Search for uh, Ready for Brooklyn under the iPhone or Android stores. And they're free and you can listen to it on your phone. And also uh, sign up for our newsletter uh, with new programming coming up, upcoming events and ticket giveaways. You can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. So thanks so much to Christine. Thanks so much to Dimitri. Thank you, Vijay. Thank you so much. We're going to be thanks, going. Guys. Thank you. We're going to be uh, going out in a minute or two with the uh, Hoverphonic, Hover, Hoverphonic uh, 2 Wiki, which is a very interesting song. I think that you guys will enjoy it. And t- tune in next time, next week. Uh, Mondays at 8 a.m. is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you. <laughs>